All right. I was telling some people this morning, I feel like I, uh, like I cheated or something this week on the sermon. Uh, because last week, as I talked to you, it was so difficult to work through some of those interpretive challenges. Um, this week, the passage, actually, it's, there's not really much to interpret. It just is what it is. And it, it presents itself to you. And I was like, I don't feel like I'm having to do any work in, in getting out what this means. It's pretty clear. But it's a fun passage this morning. So I'm excited to go through it. And, uh, and then I'm really excited to get to chapter 9 because we're going to start looking at Saul who becomes Paul. And uh, Paul might be my favorite character in the scripture. Just an amazing, amazing transformation in man. So I'm excited to get into the book of Acts. It's going to trace his life and ministry. So I uh, hope you're excited about that too. But I don't want to overlook Acts chapter 8. We're going to cover verses 26 to the end of the chapter. It's verse 40. And uh, it's a tremendous contrast between what we looked at last week with Philip leading a revival in Samaria versus Philip leading one man to Christ. And uh, there's just such cool implications, applications, contrasts for us in this. As I was reading this week, just different material, I, I was telling Bo and Dwayne in our leaders meeting this week, I've, I've tried to focus my personal time reading a lot of biographies and getting to know different men of God and their ministries, their lives, their struggles, their weaknesses, their strengths, all these things. Um, it's important to me as a young pastor, as a pastor of a young church, um, to understand the challenges that they're going to face in ministry and how to overcome them. And I read a, an account of a, a pastor whose last name was Beagle. I don't know who he was. This was at the turn of the century, um, 20th century. But he spoke about an, a, an encounter he had that, that taught him a lot. He, had, uh, he was a local pastor in a certain town back east. He'd been asked to do a conference in a neighboring city that required him to travel there by train. So it was, it was not quite close enough uh, to walk, drive, or whatever they had back then. He had to take a train. And after the conference on his train ride home, he knew he was going to have a couple hours on this train. And so his heart was, Lord, I want to be fruitful for you during this time. Even though I've just done this huge conference, he wanted to take advantage of the time on the train ride home. He had a captive audience. And so he started praying, give me an opportunity. Give me an opportunity. So people start boarding the train and are filling up the seats around him. And, and he felt like the spirit was kind of tugging his heart toward a certain woman who'd walked on. And she, she had somewhat of a downcast disposition. And so he started praying and, and tried to open up an opportunity to begin speaking to her. And before he could do it, the woman buried her face in a book. And immediately he felt like this, this voice was saying, no, nope, you don't need to share with her. And so he didn't. So he said, okay, well, you know, I thought maybe that's who the Lord was bringing. Well, a man comes and sits next to her, across the seat from her, and he starts trying to share with him. And immediately he, he's kind of a vile guy, hard guy, doesn't want any conversation to happen, shuts the conversation with him down. So he just kind of drops it and says, okay, Lord, well, I, I don't know. I don't know what's going on. And uh, he starts reading his scripture and just kind of keeping to himself. Well, the train comes to a screeching halt. And the man who he wanted to share with starts freaking out. This is the end. We're going to die. You know, and just revealed he had no hope. It terrified him. Well, he, this pastor sees that as his opportunity. So he very eloquently segues into a conversation of eternity with him. Um, about the scriptures, about Jesus Christ, about the hope we have in him of life after this. Well, this man still has the same disposition, doesn't want to hear any of it, um, shuts him down crudely. And the pastor got really discouraged because he thought, Lord, I want to, I want to bear fruit for you right now. After he finishes the conversation with the man, he looks at the woman who he originally wanted to share with. And she's bawling. She's got her book open and she's bawling. And so he sits next to her and starts asking, what's the matter? And she said, I listened to every word you shared with that man. And I was coming here very despondent at the edge of my life, ready to end it. And the words you said to him were exactly what I needed to hear. And he led her to Christ right there. And she kept in contact with this pastor years later. Um, 
writing her, uh, she became a missionary, writing him of her missionary journeys. Um, and it was just an example of here, he was, so, he was first a willing vessel to be used. He was sensitive to what the Spirit was leading him to. And when the opportunity seemed to be shut down, the voice that was saying, you don't need to share with her, was not the Lord. It was an enemy. And so he learned from that to have confidence in trusting the Spirit's leading and sharing with people. The Spirit still used his words, even though they weren't initially directed at her, they were for her. And, uh, and he led her to faith. This account today is so fruitful in that sense, because Philip was leading perhaps thousands of people to Christ in Samaria. It was a huge move forward for the church. We looked at that, how uh, Jesus had said in Acts 8, 1, 8, You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, all the way to the ends of the earth. That marked the progression outward that Jesus said would happen. It was a transitional period for the church. It, it crossed over walls and boundaries that had been raised between Jew and Samaritan. As I said, I quoted G. Campbell Morgan last week, Jews may have nothing to do with Samaritans, but Christians do, right? In Christ, there is no Jew, there is no Greek, there is no barbarian, there is neither male nor female. We are one in Christ, and that is the beauty of the body. And that's what we saw going on in Samaria. And it seems strange, why would the Lord take Philip from that? to one man. But he does. So we're going to consider that this morning. Let's read um, let's just begin reading and then uh, we'll make our way through the passage. Beginning in Acts 8 verse 26. It says, Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And he rose and went. And there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning, seated in his chariot, and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the spirit said to Philip, go over and join this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, do you understand what you are reading. And he said, how can I, unless someone guides me? So he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Let's stop there. So Philip is taken from the multitudes to the desert. It's an opening verse that pre presents that wonderful contrast to us and how important it is. I love it. It's that the Spirit of God has been using Philip so mightily in bringing multitudes to Christ and yet he calls Philip to go to one man. It's going to be one of my main points later. But he says, Philip, rise and go toward the south. And Luke adds that this is a desert place. And so Philip rose and went. I love this. The leading of God in this account, it challenges us, right? It challenges us because our logic, our understanding is hindered by time. We can't see what God may or may not have in store. And it seems awkward that God would take us away from the hustle and bustle, all the ministry needs that are going on. God, why would you take me away from that to a desert? It's not likely that you'd find someone down there. But the account reveals to us an absolute from the very beginning in ministry. And that absolute in ministry is this, that faith and obedience is the one necessity in any ministry we may have. You've got to trust the Lord and obey Him. And if He tells us, go to a desert place, you may not know why, you may not understand, but go. Go. He's writing a story. Philip rose and went. The first thing as I was studying this passage that that reminded me of was Abraham. Remember Abraham in, in Genesis 12. God tells Abraham, hey, rise up from amongst your people. Go to a place that I will show you. I'm not going to tell you where it is yet. And Abraham, what? Went. And the text literally says not knowing where he was going. But he went. He went by faith. And Abraham became the, the father of faith. 
He was justified by faith. There's so many similarities in that sense. Philip is continuing on in that same faith. Every act of ministry, in other words, must begin in faith. And it must continue in faith. Remember what the scripture says, that anything that is not of faith is sin. The role of faith. When I started the book of Acts, I made the point that there are many things that we're going to consider in this book. One of the main things that we will often bring up and continue to bring up from here on out is the necessity and role of faith in the life of a believer. And I I want to stress it because people in America and in the church in general don't truly walk in faith throughout every day, throughout every week. It's so easy, and I'm I'm not necessarily preaching to you. I do this. It's so easy to start our day just doing our thing. Not meeting with the Lord, not walking in His ways, not seeking Him throughout our day. We just get busy, we do our thing, and before we know it, the day's over. And we haven't encountered Him, we haven't encountered anybody else in ministry, we've just done our thing. But the role of faith is preeminent in the life of a Christian. It's preeminent. And when we as a church understand, hey, every day that I wake up, I want to seek the Lord... I want to get direction from him and walk in that way. You're going to start seeing yourself used in big ways by the Lord. That's the first thing. So let's do a little background first as we move forward on the information we're given. First, Ethiopia. It says he, meet, he meets a eunuch who was an Ethiopian on his way down from Jerusalem to Gaza. So Gaza was the last watering place for travelers who traveled between Egypt and Jerusalem. It's a very strategic point, okay? Because, as the text said, that area from Jerusalem down into Egypt is a desert place. Ethiopia itself was part of what was known as the Nubian Kingdom. And the Greeks and Romans considered Ethiopia the very outer bottom edge of the known world. So it was on the outskirts, okay? It was a kingdom located south of Egypt. Here's a little map to kind of show you. Um, Jerusalem was where Philip started. When they scattered, he went up there to Samaria. He's leading the revival there in Samaria. And God says, go down to Gaza. And you can see the direction he'd have to take. And then down here is the border into Egypt into which the Ethiopian would have crossed. We're told that he was a court official of Candace. In this culture, before we get there, uh, the kings were held to be incarnations of the sun god. And so they, they weren't given um, authority or duties to run an earthly kingdom. They were considered deity. And so those affairs of running the kingdom fell to the queen. So in the kingdom, the queen was probably the highest ranking person under the king of, as considered deity. Candace uh, is not the name of the queen. It's a, it was an official title similar to Pharaoh or Caesar in history. And so uh, this Ethiopian was, was a very high-ranking official. The eunuch himself, uh, being a eunuch, meant that he was emasculated for the purpose of greater trust, right? Often kings would emasculate men who were going to care or serve the queen. He wanted to be able to trust them. In this case, he was also entrusted with all of the treasure of the kingdom. Uh, in modern language, modern-day Language, we would say he was the secretary of the treasury. Okay? Big time dude. Big time dude. Um, you wouldn't just entrust anybody to that position. Well, the eunuch himself was traveling back from Jerusalem. We're told that he went to Jerusalem in verse 27 to worship. And so, most likely, this eunuch had been converted as a Gentile, been converted to Judaism. Okay? He made the trip up to Jerusalem to worship. And we also know that he had a copy of the scroll of Isaiah. He was reading it. Okay? So that, that reflects the wealth that he had. Not everybody would have copies of scrolls like that, especially the scroll of Isaiah. But he had a copy, and on his way back, he was reading it. Now what's interesting is, uh, before I get to this, let's read. Here, here's a promise out of Isaiah. I, I love this. Okay? Um, this is, uh, here's what Isaiah says specifically 
for the eunuchs. He says, let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, the Lord will surely separate me from his people. And let not the eunuch say, behold, I'm a dry tree. For thus the Lord, uh, thus says the Lord, that's a typo, sorry. For thus says the Lord to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose the things that please me and hold fast to my covenant. I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. The eunuch, obviously unable to have any children, would suffer the loss of any continued heritage or name to himself. But what does the Lord promise him here? A continuing name and a continuing heritage better than what any son or daughter could give him. The Lord will give an everlasting name to him. And I have to speculate. Um, this is my speculation again. You can reject this if you want. Given what that promise says to a eunuch about keeping covenant, keeping the Lord's Sabbath. I have to speculate if the eunuch was motivated by that promise to go to Jerusalem and worship. Okay, This is uh, Isaiah chapter 57, I believe. I didn't put the reference down. Uh, just after the passage that he was reading in the scroll. But the portion he, uh, he was reading was out of Isaiah 53. We'll cover that in a minute. So Philip comes up to the eunuch, the Ethiopian. And uh, let's pick it up in verse 28. So the eunuch was returning. He was seated in his chariot. He was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the spirit says to Philip, go over and join that chariot. Now it's not just one chariot in this caravan. It would have been a caravan of chariots. Okay. And it's not the normal way you approach high officials either. You usually wouldn't just run up to a chariot of someone of this stature unless you want to get killed. Okay? Philip demonstrates his boldness in obedience by doing what? Just that. The Spirit says, go to this chariot. I'm going. So he runs up to that chariot. Verse 30 says, he ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet. Now I wonder what Philip thought when he hears the words of Isaiah being read. I'm sure in his heart he began to smile, right? Ah, Lord, I see what you're doing. He hears this Ethiopian. And he asks him a question. Do you understand what you're reading? So this eunuch was obviously a devout worshiper. He was zealous in his faith. Yet, there was profound ignorance of the truth that he professed in his worship. It's true for millions of people today, isn't it? How many people you know are zealous in their faith, who are uh, religious in their doings, right? They're zealous, they're, they go to church, they do things, and yet when you begin to talk to them about the substance of faith, there's an ignorance present. That was what happened here. So Philip asked him, do you understand this? It's not, it's not impressive that he's reading Isaiah. He's reading one of the most important passages in all of Scripture, the suffering servant. What's impressive is, do you know this? That's the substance. How many devout worshipers are zealous in their faith and ignorant as far as any true knowledge? Many, many. I was there at one point in my life. For years went to church. And it, it was as a, uh, blinders were over my eyes. I didn't understand the things I heard. When the Scripture was open, I didn't get it. I've said this very often, the first time I ever opened the Bible in college on my own to try and read it, I opened up to Matthew and I thought it was printed in Chinese. I didn't understand. There's profound ignorance in me. And it wasn't until I came to faith in Christ and salvation that understanding came. Because now the Spirit of God dwelt in me and He gives me a mind to understand those things, according to 1 Corinthians 2. So people need a guide. And, and Philip understood this. His approach to the man was very, very noteworthy for us. First, he met the man literally where he was. You could also say metaphorically. He met the man where he was. He went to him, even though this man was going through a desert. He went there, and he met him where he was. He approached the man first with a question. Do you understand what you're reading? I love that approach to people. I had a couple of Jehovah's Witnesses come to my house this week. And my wife joked with me, you're not an evangelist. I said, I wish I, w I, I wish I could leave people to faith. But the way I started with them was asking them questions. Well, who is Jesus to you? 
And, well, he's God's son. So I said, well, what does that mean? And had them explain. I asked them, well, what is salvation? What do, what do you believe about salvation? Well, we've got to earn it. We've got to be our best. And, and so ascertaining that information and using their answers helped me to know, well, hey, I can share this portion of Scripture with them and give them answers. And, and I have to rest in the fact, I, I wish I could just, like Billy Graham, lead people to faith. You know, he makes, he makes it look easy. I, I, I'm just not like that. So if you're like that, take courage. Um, I know I'm more of a, a prophetic type of, hey, here's what the word says. Take it or leave it. You know? No, I don't. <laughs> no, I, won't, I, I hope I don't do that to anybody. You punch me in the face if you do, right? Um, but, but I left that encounter with those guys. Just my prayer was, Lord, maybe, maybe what I said to them will begin to expose the fallacy of their faith. That they're trusting in themselves and not in Christ. And that they can't ever be good enough. Or maybe all my role was in that encounter was just to plant seeds. And, and use it. But asking questions in approaching people is one of the best ways to do it. Think of yourself. Think of your own testimony. How did you come to faith? Some people come to faith by standing on a street corner and listening to a street preacher. I'm not going to say that's not valid. The more common way that people come to faith is through one-on-one interactions, right? Through conversations. Through someone who knows the Lord gently prying into their business, right? And exposing some of the things that they're trusting in. But very gently leading them to the truth. That's what Philip's doing. Do you understand what you're reading? In fact... The the Greek here is very interesting. Literally, it could read, do you know the things that you know? It's a play on words, right? Okay, so I I know this scripture, but do you know this scripture? That's the idea. The scripture, as I said earlier, is out of Isaiah 53, verses 7 and 8. The whole chapter is one of the most important chapters uh, in the Old Testament because it details... Um, the suffering servant with great detail. By his stripes we have been healed. He was pierced for our transgressions, right? He was buried in a rich man's tomb. And it speaks wonderfully about the suffering servant who was the Messiah. There was great debate in the Jewish circles during this time as to who that passage was referring to. Some held that it was referring um, to the slaughtered sheep, right, of Israel, the nation as a whole. Some held that Isaiah was speaking about himself, the prophet, and others held, the majority held that it referred to the Messiah. So the fact that the eunuch was familiar with that passage, number one, and he was familiar with that debate, number two, tells us even more about the eunuch. He was in tune with the current theological issues. Why? Because he wanted to know. It wasn't simply theological knowledge to him. He wanted answers to these things. This truth, though he didn't understand it, it nevertheless gripped him. I can remember certain phrases as I listened um, to Skip Heitzig preach before I was saved. He would say things out of the scripture that would grip my heart because it was beautiful, it was powerful, and yet there was still this ignorance in me. I didn't quite get it. That's what was going on with this man. He knew the theological debate. He'd gone to Jerusalem to the temple. He'd probably heard some of the rabbis and priests debating on what this meant. But he left unsatisfied. He left without answers. Why? Because they couldn't give it to him. We've just gone through Acts 1-7 through where Stephen was just martyred because they rejected that Messiah. They couldn't give him the meaning of that passage as wonderful as it was. Why? Because they were in unbelief. He left unsatisfied. He was pondering that truth on his way home, hoping to know what it meant. Philip comes. He didn't know Philip from Adam. He says, who's this talking about? And Philip meets him where he's at. It's interesting. I watched last night before I went to bed a YouTube video on a ministry in Jerusalem called the Yeshua Project. I really liked it. He's a Jewish believer young guy, I think he's a pastor maybe, I don't know. Uh, I didn't do so much investigation, but he's interviewing Orthodox Jews in Israel, on the street. 
And the title of this video was, was called The Forbidden Chapter in the Hebrew Bible. It's Isaiah 53. And he notes that the rabbis forbid that chapter in particular to be read in synagogues today. Since 70 AD, I think, actually. And so the Jews today don't know Isaiah 53. So he gives them their Hebrew scriptures and has them read that chapter. And it's so wonderful to watch them talk about this Messiah of theirs. What he would do, he would take our sins upon himself. Even though he did nothing wrong, he was rejected. They understood that meaning. But then he gets, gets to the nitty gritty. He says, can you think of anyone that that could apply to? In almost all of them, you see the stubbornness of heart. You see that veil go over their eyes. They wouldn't say, no, I can't think of anyone. But there was one Jewish young man. He got a little squirmy, and he said, Jesus. He says, and it's interesting because when we talk about Jesus, we always want to reject him. And that's exactly what this says we do. He says, but it's worth considering. Very powerful text. Philip meets this man and begins there. So, let's read it though. Verse 32. It says, the passage of scripture that he was reading was this. Like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter. And like a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. So the eunuch said to Philip, About whom I ask you, does this prophet say this is? About himself or about someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, See? Here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop. And they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And when they came up out of the water, the spirit of the Lord carried Philip away, and the eunuch saw him no more. And he went on his way, rejoicing. But Philip found himself at Azotus, and as he passed through, he preached the gospel to all the towns until he came. To Caesarea. I love what that text says. Beginning with that scripture, he moves forward through the rest of it. And he tells them about Jesus, the good news about Jesus. What does Paul say in Romans 10, 17? Faith comes by hearing, in hearing the word of Christ. He says at the beginning of Romans verse one, uh, chapter 1, verse 16, that the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes it. That is literally the theme verse of Romans. What's the power of God to convert a soul from darkness to light, from death to life? It's the gospel. So Philip begins with that scripture where he was, and from there he tells him of Jesus. I wrote in my own notes, and sharing Christ with people... We get very uncomfortable because we get unsure of our own biblical knowledge. Right? And so sometimes what we end up reverting to is our own personal testimony. And I don't want to downplay the value of your testimony. What it does to people is it endears you to them as another sinner. Not as someone righteous in their, you know. It endears you to them as there's a commonality there. But your testimony does not have the power to convert them. It doesn't. What we need is the word of God. So Philip starts there. We want to be in our church very intentional about this point. At every level, we want to be training people up in the word of God. This is why one of the first class I started on Tuesday nights was, how do you study this? Because so many people are intimidated in coming to the Word. They don't know how. And I don't fault you for that. I didn't know how either. When you didn't grow up learning the Bible or go to a church that taught the Bible, this is so intimidating. That's, that was my testimony. Someone had to take me very gently and say, this is how you approach it. This is how you begin to learn. That's why I'm doing the class on Tuesday nights. Because when people get excited about God's Word and they begin to know God's Word... That's when the church is going to begin to be used mightily. That's it. 
We want to be very intentional. We want to be very intentional with our kids to teach our kids from an early age the Word of God. In every level of ministry, even in future ministry that has yet to come about, we want the Word of God to be central. It's got to be prioritized. Let's look at the eunuch's faith and his obedience. So Philip preaches the good news. And there's obviously some time that passes here. Because apparently it's not stated in the text. But Philip had even told him about baptism. Okay? And the need for baptism. Because they come upon some water. Verse 36. As they're going along the road they came to some water. And the eunuch says to him, see here's some water. What prevents me from being baptized? Now, uh, depending on the version of Scripture you have, if you're using an ESV like I'm preaching out of, or if you have a NASB, it will differ. Maybe some other translations out there. The ESV skips from verse 36 to verse 38. It skips verse 37. Verse 37, as an insert, says this, and you may have it in your version there. Philip responds to the man, If you believe with all of your heart, you may. Now, the reason the ESV takes that out is because that verse is not found in all the earliest manuscripts. Um, and what they think it was was a scribe's gloss, a note, that should never have actually been placed in the text, but as a, a note, a footnote, right? Because that's good theology. You don't get baptized if you don't believe, right? The waters aren't magical. It's faith. But if you do believe, yes, you need to be baptized, and so it's good theology, but it's not necessarily um, part of the original text. All the earliest manuscripts don't have it. So it's, it's relegated to the margin as a known. It should be. Okay? But what we're told is that the, the eunuch says, hey, what prevents me from being baptized? Verse 38, so he commands the chariot to stop. And they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized them. The eunuch's faith was apparent, right? He was primed and ready for answers. He didn't find it in the, the Jewish dogma in the temple. He found it in the desert with Philip, the evangelist. He got the answers he needed. He believed on Jesus the Christ. And he follows it with immediate obedience in baptism. That's what baptism should be, right? The first act or expression of an obedient faith in Christ. That's the importance of baptism. <coughs> now this is where it seems to get strange as we read it. Verse 39 says, When they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away, and the eunuch saw him no more, and he went on his way rejoicing. So it seems strange. Here's what G. Campbell Morgan, probably my favorite commentator, said. He says, I am never anxious to read miracles in to a text that is where they are not there. Any more than I'm anxious to rule miracles out where they are in. He concludes that there's no reason to, to read a miracle into this account. I tend to disagree with him, even though he's my favorite commentator. I wrote down several <coughs> scripture passages. The, the last two there, 2 Corinthians and 1 Thessalonians, actually use this same word in the Greek. 2 Corinthians 12 is talking about Paul being snatched up to the third heaven. Right? The first Thessalonians 4.17 is talking about the rapture of the church. The church being snatched up, taken away. Right? All of a sudden they're gone. Uh, Genesis 5.24 is the account of Enoch. Who walked with God and God took him. He was found no more. Um, and then 1 Kings 18 and, uh, and following is the account of Elijah. Being snatched up in the chariots of fire. This is not new to scripture what happened to Philip. But it is miraculous. It's not an everyday occurrence that all of a sudden the Spirit of God just transports you from one place to another. Whether it's from Gaza to Azotus, as Philip went, or from uh, earth to heaven. <laughs> he was gone. Um, and I love the way this reads. If you interpret it as, as a miracle like that, when they come up out of the water, they both go down into the water, and as they're coming up, all of a sudden the eunuch's by himself. Hey, is he drowning? You know, what, what happened? I don't know. But we're not told that the eunuch really was bothered or, or wondered much about it. He was so overcome with joy as he went on, right? He had been united by faith 
to the Savior he inquired about. I love that. But the Lord had used Philip for the one purpose he wanted to use him for, and he wasn't done with him yet. He takes him to Azotus and all the surrounding towns. Philip keeps on preaching the gospel. And he arrives back at Caesarea. It's a beautiful account. I want to get some applications out of this. This is, this is some good stuff. First, God's care for the individual is really, in my opinion, what's being magnified here. Right? Individual evangelism is often more fruitful than mass evangelism because it is particular to that individual and where they are. I will say this. Sometimes it's hardest, though. Because sometimes those people that you and I want to witness to and share our faith with are those that know us the best. Right? And we can't really hide our flaws from them. But with a humble spirit, you can say, you know what? That's exactly why I need a Savior. That's why you need a Savior. Sometimes personal evangelism opens doors to people's hearts that a mass setting would not. Neither one of these are to be preferred over the other, these approaches. Billy Graham was raised up in an effective ministry. But there's many, many people who've passed under the limelight, never noticed, who've led hundreds of people to faith. Right? The Lord has his eye on this one man, this eunuch in the desert, between two places... And he says, Philip, go to him. How beautiful is that? How beautiful is that? I, uh, I wrote in my own notes as I thought about that point. I said, think of the joy and thankfulness that would have filled the eunuch's heart had he been aware of the circumstances surrounding Philip's coming to him. What if Philip said, hey, you know what I was just doing? I was leading a revival in Samaria and the Lord said, come down here. And I didn't know why, but here you were. What would the eunuch have thought? God, you orchestrated this for me? Does that not communicate the concern and love that God has for an individual? One of the things that blew me away when I came to faith, I, came up, I grew up in Albuquerque, a very large city. And uh, my best friend Mike had come to faith before me. And... He'd been trying to share his faith with me, and I was just hard-hearted, proud, didn't want to hear it. I just thought Mike was all of a sudden holier than us, you know, whatever. And he could see that I was not responsive at that time to the gospel. My heart wasn't open. So what he decided to do, he and my friend Jennifer, who also I grew up with, they would drive all the way across Albuquerque, 30 minutes, to their church, their youth group. With other youth kids who I didn't know, and they'd pray for me every week. They told me that after I came to faith. I had no idea that they were dedicated to doing that. What if we started doing that? What if we were concerned for loved ones, friends, so much so I'd be willing to drive 30 minutes every week and pray for their salvation? Here I am, I'm a pastor. Never would have been my choice. The Lord had a different idea. He has his eye on people, and he wants you to be used in their story of salvation. How exciting is that to you? Does that not get you excited? That you would become part of their story, written in eternity? That's what this story communicates to me first. Second is the leading of the Holy Spirit in evangelism. John 3.8 says this, The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear it sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. God is the author of salvation. Scripture says that. He has determined the means of salvation. Faith and His Son. The time and circumstances, though, in which a soul is found, we don't know. God knows, but we don't. So as we uh, minister to the lost, keep in mind, you don't know, just like those Jehovah's Witnesses that came to my door. I don't know what the Lord's going to do with what I told them. Maybe they went home and came to faith in Christ. I don't know. 
I hope so. But just as the wind blows and we don't know where it's going, where it's coming from, that's how the Spirit moves. And if when we approach ministry and we've got it all figured out, here, I'm going to say this and then we're going to do this and this is how they're going to respond and we're going to, hey, I can guarantee you that's not how it will happen. Ministry is not uh, static like that all the time. It's very fluid. And what we must become attentive to is the leading of the Spirit. Just as the pastor opened up with that illustration. He thought the Lord was telling him to share with that woman. He was tempted to think, oh no, not, not her. All along, yes, it was that woman. But the means by which the message came to her was not how he thought. It still came to her. God is willing, or God is writing a beautiful testimony of how he saves souls. And the awesome part of that is it's different for each person. I wonder if heaven will be filled with, hey, here's how the Lord saved me. He pulled me out of a, a bar. I had a roommate who came to Christ while he was on an acid trip. <laughs> Not kidding. Third, true seeking. What is true seeking? Because there's lots of people who seem to be seeking the Lord. Remember the rich young ruler when he came to Christ? What must I do to inherit eternal life? And the, the Lord knew his heart. His heart was still entangled with all of his money. So he, he dealt with that issue. The man never came to faith. He walked away sorry because he wasn't willing to part from his money. So, so there's people who seem to be seeking. But what is true seeking? What accompanies it? Well, this passage shows us. The eunuch demonstrated his zeal by traveling to worship. He demonstrated his interest by reading Isaiah. And he demonstrated his willingness by asking a question. There's a difference when somebody asks a question uh, just to gain facts versus I want to know the answer. And they're willing to follow that answer wherever it may take them. They haven't already predetermined the outcome. If this is your answer, I'm not believing it. That's not true seeking, right? It's not faith. You've already made up your mind. That's not the case with the eunuch. He asked the question, why? Because he wanted to know. So many times we look at people and we've already determined oh, they don't really want to know. What if that person that you're judging in that way really does want to know and all you have to do is open your mouth like Philip did and they receive it? How wonderful a testimony would that be to us to see God use you Penetrate that heart with the truth that you share with them. It's obvious that the Lord had been stirring the eunuch and preparing him for some time. And in sometimes in our encounters uh, with people, they're not yet at the point where this eunuch was. Some first just need to be introduced to the truth. I think that might be the case with the Jehovah's Witness this week in my life. They just needed to be told, hey... There's some problems with what you're, what you're believing. If you're trusting yourself, you've got to look at that. Christ said it's not good enough. Others may be familiar with what you're saying, but uninterested. Others still may be very religious and yet um, uh, totally blind and ignorant. Okay? We as ministers of the gospel um, cannot afford to make a judgment... All, all God wants from us is open your mouth, obey me, share the good news about Jesus. I know where their heart is. I know what they need to hear. You be the vessel, the mouthpiece for it. These last points here I thought were wonderful. They're not my points. They're from a pastor I really like. His name is W.H. Griffith Thomas. <clears throat> These are the qualifications he put down of one who leads people to Christ. And I thought they were great, so I'm going to share them with you. He said this, first, you must have fellowship with the Spirit of God. The worker must be receptive to divine leading and responsive, recognizing the divine atmosphere being led into. And if you've ever, if you don't know what he's saying there about the divine atmosphere, you need to... Start ministering to people. There are times where, where you're sharing with people and it's, 
hey, I'm being faithful, I'm sharing. But then there's times where you know this was a God-appointed meeting. It's just that atmosphere that he created where they have opened up their hearts and you know the words you're saying are speaking into their life. Recognize that and be bold when you share. Because you, what you're experiencing is divine intervention here and now. He's using you. A worker, he says, is not called indiscriminately to minister to all people. But he should be prayerful for God's leading to individuals. The Holy Ghost works at both ends, he says, preparing the soil as well as the sower. Philip was ready. He had already been being obedient to the Lord in Samaria. He was walking in the Spirit so that the Spirit could simply say, Hey, go down to the desert. Boom, he went. He prepared the sower as well as the soil. Second thing Thomas says is this, faithfulness to the Spirit. The Christian worker must trust. Even if you feel needed in one place, you must be willing to go to another. I, as a pastor, this is really what, what I struggle with in that account. So much work would have needed to be done in Samaria with these new disciples, right? Establishing them in the faith, pouring into their life, and yet God snatched Philip away. I would struggle with that. But you've got to be willing to go. You've got to be obedient, he says, willing to leave many for the one, or busy city for a dreary road. That is the true spirit of a Christian worker. That's hard. We often have in our mind what we want in ministry. And if it's not that, I'm not doing it. Would you be willing to leave what you think you should be doing and go to a desert place perhaps? Might be where God's calling you. It's not going to be noticed. It's not going to be glamorous. It might not have all the praise of men accompanied with it. It might be one individual. But do you know what the consequence of this was? The seed of the gospel was dropped into the heart of that one man who then took it to an entire continent. Very cool. The third thing he says is fearlessness in the spirit. Christian workers are aggressive and not probably how you're thinking. I mean, they don't grab the people by the shirt coat, you know, listen to me. No. Not that kind of aggressive. What he points out is that Philip ran to the chariot, right? They run to the work. They're zealous for the work. Hey, if God is raising this up, let's go. They, re they resemble Joshua and Caleb wanting to take the promised land. Hey, yeah, they're giants. So what? God's promised us the land, right? Let's go. That's the spirit they have. But at the same time, the Christian worker is careful, they're tactful, they're pleasant, they're attractive and wise, they're endowed with sanctified common sense, Thomas says, because there's always a danger of blundering the encounter. And honestly, I have that fear all the time because I know I can come across really blunt. And, and I was talking to Dylan this week about that, and he gets me, so he was like, oh, no, I don't take it like that, but... I can come across when I get passionate, like I'm yelling at you. And please don't take it like I'm yelling at you. I'm just, it's just me. So, you can tell me, hey, quit yelling at us. I won't be offended. Fourth, Thomas says this, forcefulness through the Spirit. First, they're scriptural, right? They want to know the Bible so well that Christ may be preached from any passage. Now stop and think about that. This was honestly one of the biggest points for me as I studied the scripture. And, and when I read Thomas say that, I, I almost made this a, pound, a point to expound on. The fact that Philip was able to recognize the passage in Isaiah. And from that point move forward through the scriptures is impressive. He knew his Bible. Just like the video I told you about uh, the Yeshua project. That man shared the gospel with those Jews completely out of the Old Testament. He didn't reference one New Testament passage. It was impressive. 
It was impressive. He's quoting Daniel. He's quoting Ezekiel. He's quoting Jeremiah. He's quoting Isaiah. He's quoting Moses. The gospel's in there. That's what Paul used, right? As he's writing our New Testament documents, he's using the Old Testament to share the gospel. They knew the scripture. This is so paramount. Our church is only going to rise to a, a level of strength spiritually that you're willing to go scripturally. If, if scripture is not going to become a priority in our life, we will never be a truly spiritual church. Never. We're just going to kind of play church. The prayer I have for us is that we are excited about the word of God. We see God moving in our midst, using the word of God with us, changing us, cleansing us, growing us, feeding. It's active in us. When that happens in a congregation, watch out. That city is going to be set ablaze. That's my prayer for us. That this would become so priority for you that you'd want to know it. You take Philip's example and say, I want to be like Philip. I want to recognize that passage and be able to expound on it. And you give yourself to study the word in that way. Secondly, he says, they're also practical. Not only do they want to proclaim the word, but they want to apply the word. They're not after simply knowledge, but obedience. Paul opens and closes the letter of Romans with a statement that's so important. He says, I've been appointed as an apostle, preacher of the gospel, to bring about the obedience of faith. He bookends that magnificent testament of, of Romans with that statement. The whole purpose of the gospel is to bring about obedience by faith. Not by a legalistic system, but by faith. We don't want to simply know, but obey what we're told. Ideas will never save the soul. And truth is insufficient without man's reception of it by faith. People hear the truth all the time. It's like Hebrews chapter 3 says, Israel heard the gospel beforehand, but it was fruitless in their life, he says, because it was not united by faith in the hearers. Truth is insufficient when faith it's, is absent. Wonderful points to consider as a Christian worker. Okay, But let's take this further as a church. Maybe, maybe the Lord wants Waypoint to have a ministry of mass evangelism. I don't know. Maybe the Lord wants Waypoint to start plugging into the people in our lives as individuals. Your co-workers, your friends, your family. And start taking steps in faith to share with them. Start praying for their soul. That's where you begin. Pray for them. When Mike saw that my soul, my heart was not receptive to the gospel, he prayed for me. Lord, make him suitable soil to receive the seed of the gospel. You know what started happening in my life? I started coming under conviction of sin. I started feeling bad about how I was living. I started seeing, I'm not such a great God like I thought. That's the effectiveness of the prayers they were praying. When I started seeing my own guiltiness, when I started seeing my own need, that's when my heart became receptive to the gospel. I don't have it figured out. I need answers. And the rest is history. Why don't we start there? In our small group times, dedicate time to pray for the souls of people you love. Dedicate time to pray, Lord, would you allow me the opportunity to share with them. And Lord, when that opportunity opens up, give me the courage to be obedient and take it. Help me to be like Philip in faith. When I'm told to say, to go, I don't question, I don't hesitate, I get up and go. Look what the Lord did with Philip. In heaven, his name is going to be great because he was just an obedient servant. He was a willing servant. I don't know if I said this last week, but I was reading it last week. D.L. Moody. Has anybody ever heard of Dwight L. Moody? Moody Bible College in Chicago. He was a, an evangelist that is, I love reading about him because he was, he was just a poor, he grew up very, very poor. And uh, was saved basically out of the streets. 
He heard a pastor say this to him, and it changed his life. It's what made him who he was. This pastor told D.L. Moody early, early on in his ministry, he says, The Lord has yet, or the world has yet to see uh, what the Lord can do with the soul completely surrendered to him. It doesn't matter who you are. You may be thinking to yourself, I'm nobody. I can't do that. Yes, you can. It's not you. It's about the Spirit of Christ in you. And He can do all things through you. You don't think you can be used like Philip? Yes, you can. All the Lord wants is a willing heart. And He'll take you and use you. So challenge yourself with that. I'm convinced, and, and honestly, I'll just open up with you here. I'm not really desirous of this church growing simply by swapping church members with people. I'm not. I'm not interested in stealing people from other churches and adding them to our number. That's not what I want. But what I do want to see is people growing because they're coming to faith. That's what I want to see growth in. But you know what it's going to take? Willingness. Willingness to share. But how awesome a testimony, church, when people start joining our body because you are faithful to share with them. That they come to experience the life of Christ because you are willing to share with them. And now they're joining you in fellowship and worship. How that would fill this place with joy, with life, with power. That's what my prayer is for us. I, I hope it's yours. So I'm going to invite the worship team up. We're going to sing one last song. Take a moment to think about these points. And, uh, and I'll pray for us. Father, I love this passage. It was, um, Father, as far as the work of exegeting it and, and finding the meaning of it was not difficult. But Father, the difficulty lies in the obedience of it. And Father, it is only difficult at times because of my unwillingness to submit. Father, remove that heart from me. Remove the stubbornness, the pride. Father, bring me to a greater place of submission to you. One, to be who I need to be as a pastor, as a father, as a husband. But even more, Lord, as your child. My life, the scripture tells me, is not my own. I've been bought with a price. And yet I live my own life so often. I live as though it's my life, not yours. Help me to see, Father, the great joy, the great reward. Father, the the fruitful life of the one who surrenders to God. And is, is willing to be used however and whenever you choose. Because it's going to be good. It's going to be costly, Lord. We have to give up things that we love. We have to change our pursuits and desires. But Father, you always replace it with something greater. You start changing our heart and mind to see that the greatest pursuit and the greatest desire is you. In heaven, that's all that's going to matter. Our jobs aren't going to matter. Our income is not going to matter. The things we can acquire on this earth are not going to matter. What you're going to say is, what did you do with my son? Were you faithful to the gospel? Because that's what you're concerned about. That's your priority. You came to save and seek the lost and to make disciples. Help the church's vision and focus be brought back to that where it's not, Lord. Help us as individuals daily to be brought back to that point of truth. Lord, your desire for me is to be about that work in my job, in my pursuits, in my family. Father, I pray for fathers. This Father's Day is coming up. Father, I've been thinking about this, of, of the testimony I'm leaving my children, the work that I have in the gospel for the sake of my children's souls. How you want the Father to be the picture of Christ to them, to be the mouthpiece of truth. 
And Father, where we're failing as dads, where we're not fulfilling that mission, convict us greatly because something very great is at stake. But Father, fill us with repentance, resolve to say, Lord, I will start as a witness for Christ in my own home with my own children and be faithful there. So that rather than their testimony being filled with the absence of an influence in their dad, it would be filled with the presence of a Christ-like influence in their life. That they could say, I saw Christ first in my father and in my mother. Father, revive us as we've, we've sung today. As we're about to sing, Lord, lay us down. And as we're going to look at the Apostle Paul, oh, what you do with people who lay themselves down for the gospel's sake. He had been crucified with Christ. He no longer lived, but you lived in him. Father, may those be our words. We pray in Jesus' name.